Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a presentation from the 2019 IO Combinations 360 event, where Dr. Willem Overwick of Nectar Therapeutics discussed Nectar's work with harnessing the IL-2 pathway in combination immunotherapies. Enjoy the podcast. For the opportunity to present some of our work on what we lovingly call BEMPEG, um, also known as Nectar 214, uh, an IL-2 analog in combination immunotherapies. And do I forward the slides or do you no. forward the slides? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I did it already. Thank you. Um, so to dive right in, in the interest of time, uh, Bempec aldous leucan is an aldous leucan molecule that we've pegylated with six polyethylene glycol chains <clears throat> that slowly come off uh, over time in an aqueous environment spontaneously. So this is a prodrug that's inactive, an, an inactive form of IL-2 that's given and um, hydrolyzes the pegs off till you get the two peg and the one peg version, which are bioactive and have uh, a preferential binding to the beta-gamma uh, subunits of IL-2 receptor uh, over the alpha-beta-gamma IL-2 subunits. And so they prefer uh, preferentially activate T cells and uh, effector T cells and NK cells over regulatory T cells. And so in preclinical models, here are eight different models where we find that um, aldous leucan is not as good as Nectar 214. Nectar 214 is, is stronger in combination uh, 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 with anti-PD-1 or alone in uh, shrinking tumors in preclinical models. And on the right, you can see that that correlates with the infiltration of T cells into those tumors, effector CD8 T cells, um, many more found after Nectar 214 therapy than regular IL-2 therapy. And indeed, in our PIVOT uh, study clinically, we, um, we have now uh, reported the phase one study in, a, in a, the Excel study in a paper in Cancer Discovery earlier this year and we have presented uh, publicly the results on the expansion cohorts in combination with nivolumab um, for uh, urothelial carcinoma and melanoma, both in the first line. And essentially, you can see on the left here the, um, the T cell, the, the total lymphocyte counts in these patients. With every administration, every cycle of BEMPEG, we see this increase in the uh, lymphocyte counts. They come down and then three weeks later get a uh, next cycle. And again, the counts go up uh, over and over. And that's really due to the Nectar 214 because the, um, the monotherapy showed the same result. We see this very typical sawtooth, sawtooth um, pattern in essentially every patient. And no matter how many cycles we give, we keep seeing that so that doesn't burn out over time. And again, on the left, you can see that with even more cycles. And on the right, you can see that it also uh, translates into a CD8 infiltrate. This is in melanoma. So from baseline to week three, that's after just one cycle uh, of this drug, we, uh, we see an increase in the CD8 infiltrate. So tumors get hotter. And in urothelial carcinoma, that's um, also reflected in the PDL1 expression. So many of them start at zero or very low levels of PDL1, and that also goes up in, uh, in the majority of patients uh, once they uh, go on treatment. 
So the, the, the bladder cancer results were presented at ASCO GU earlier this year. And you can see here the, uh, the responses. You see some details on liver mets and so on. And what is striking to us is that the PDL1 status is not uh, predictive of response. So we see as good responses in patients who are PDL1 negative compared to patients who are PDL1 positive. And so we're very excited about this, uh, these results on the, on the combination in uh, metastatic bladder cancer, first line. And in melanoma, the results were just reported at ASCO this year by Michael Hurwitz. And um, we are very uh, enthusiastic about the deep, complete response rates um, with the combination in first line melanoma. And um, it, there's a little bit of benefit here being PDL1 positive, but again, we still have a very nice response rate in PDL1 negative um, tumors as well. And there are the swimmer plots just for, for completeness. I won't walk through them, but they're in the slide set. And in terms of the uh, tolerability, we see very nice tolerability. We really don't see a whole lot of toxicity over what we see with nivolumab. So, the IL-2 toxicity we think uh, that, that we all know about from the early experiences with IL-2 and melanoma and renal cell cancer, we think we're mitigating that in large part because we don't have to give these very high boluses of drug um, to get a, a certain, you know, a, a limited amount of uh, time of exposure. Because of the pro-drug design, we have a very extended exposure, uh, which was reported in the monotherapy paper. The PK is very, very different. So we don't need to give these very high uh, peak values of, of a drug, and we think that mitigates, mitigates the toxicity. So what we basically do is we preventatively hydrate the patients um, and to keep the blood pressure okay, and then we just send them home. So this is an outpatient uh, regimen. And you can see here that the symptoms are mostly the typical flu-like symptoms that we see with, uh, with checkpoint blockade as well. So we have a pretty extensive biomarker program to understand, um, understand what's happening uh, in the patients to guide us for future combinations, of which you, I will show you just a, a, a few little tidbits at the end. And here you can see some of the markers that we are, have focused on, which is um, understandably the PDL1, the CD8, also the PD1 expression on CD8, and then a few different um, activation markers on the CD8s like PD1 itself or KI67. We've also looked at ICOS and some others, but these are the markers that um, have been useful. And we also look at the genetic level, the gene expression level at the interferon gamma score as reported by Ayers in 2017. And we've added a few of our favorite genes to it. So this is a, what we call bespoke um, um, uh, interferon gamma score that, that we constructed internally. And so you can see that in, um, and maybe the next slides will be a little, little easier to, um, to look at. So you can see here that some of these parameters are, uh, are fairly predictive of outcome, particularly in melanoma. So the interferon gamma score, if I can point at that. Um, you can see here that the overall response rate, if, the, if you're below the median, is 20%, but it's 80% if you're above the median. And that's just taking the median. We didn't do some kind of um, uh, optimized cutoff. We simply took the median. And if you're above the median, um, you have a much higher response rate than below the median. It's actually a slightly better, um, a better predictive marker for us than the PDL1 score itself, although that still has a little bit of value too, but you can see not nearly as much, 40, 40 versus 
uh, as opposed to 20 versus 80 for the interferon gamma score. And then the T-cell infiltrate gives you um, some clear benefit as well. So the CD3 and the CD8 till gives you a, a pretty decent separation between the responders and the non-responders. In urothelial carcinoma, it's nice that we have these two different histologies that get the same regimen, so we can look at them side by side. It's actually not the same picture, so we don't really see that the PDL1, for example, is, uh, is predictive, um, or the interferon gamma score for that matter. It's basically 50-50 for, for many of these markers. Um, and we don't really understand exactly why that is. Uh, we see these very good responses with the same regimen, but the biomarkers don't line up in exactly the same way. So this is interesting to us. We're trying to dissect this further and understand this, and we're also in other histologies, um, and we're going to line those up as well to see if something shakes out uh, across those um, different histologies in terms of the biomarkers. But, um, but clearly, we, we do believe that the T cells and the PDL1 um, and the interferon gamma that derives from the P T cells are, um, are powerful markers, particularly in uh, the melanoma setting. And so in melanoma, in, in both cases, we do, uh, as, as mentioned before, see these uh, very clear increases in CD8s. What was an interesting difference to us between melanoma and the bladder cancer setting is that, as you can appreciate here, in the bladder cancer, the baseline levels of CD8 prior to treatment are much lower than in melanoma. And this is maybe not uh, totally surprising with melanoma being such a relatively hot tumor. But what was uh, gratifying to see is that we see increases with the therapy in both settings. So you can go from pretty darn inflamed already in melanoma to even more inflamed or not quite so inflamed in the uh, urothelial uh, setting to uh, still more inflamed. And the fold increase in those two histologies, as you can see on the right, is actually quite comparable, even though the baseline is quite different. So even at low levels of infiltration, there is, uh, there is a, an ability to improve those, um, those CD8 counts in the tumor tissue with the combination regimen. And then when we plot uh, on the x-axis here the PDL1 percentage in the tumor tissue and on the y-axis the um, CD8 infiltration, both at baseline, you can see that for melanoma there's actually a very nice um, separation, if I point here on the right, in the lower left-hand quadrant um, where almost all, where essentially all the progressive disease patients cluster together. It's not just progressive disease. So if you're in that quadrant, it doesn't mean that there can be no response whatsoever. But if, you, um, if you're a progressive disease patient, you were probably in that quadrant to begin with. For the urothelial carcinoma, it's not quite that clear. We have a few patients who, who progressed even with um, more favorable PDL1 and CD8 scores. So again, the, the, the correlation with CD8s and PDL1 is not nearly as, um, as clear in urothelial carcinoma than it is in melanoma. But we, we are actually quite interested to see that in particularly melanoma, if you're not in that lower, uh, lower left-hand quadrant, then, uh, which is still the majority of patients, is not in that quadrant, then there's an, an excellent outlook um, once put on this regimen. So it, it does help us to, um, to predict to some extent, just from the baseline sample, to, uh, to say something about disease control rate and, and odds of, uh, of a response, at least a partial response. In, uh, in that subset of patients. 
So because BEMPEG, uh, as I showed you, expands CDA T cells, it is an IL-2, um, a modified IL-2, so we understand a fair bit about its re mechanism of action. We can uh, loosely say that in this little scheme, uh, chemotherapy, adoptive cell therapy, and cancer vaccines are thought to prime T cells, increase T cells by one way or another. So we can either infuse them adoptively or we can prime them with vaccines or probably also prime them with chemotherapy, although chemotherapy does a lot of other things to the microenvironment too, of course. Then with checkpoint inhibitors, we really activate the, the T cells. And in the micro, if we manipulate the microenvironment, many things can happen. And that's a whole, uh, that's a variety of things, of course, that can happen there. So mechanistically, BEMPEG being a T-cell expander and activator is, is uh, reasonably expected to synergize with these um, buckets of therapeutics. And based on that, we've done uh, multiple studies, many through academic collaborations. So here's a co combination study from Dr. Ribas, which has been presented at ASCO last year. Um, where he combined our BEMPEG Nectar 214 with adoptive T cell therapy using the, the PML1 model uh, of uh, adoptive transfer in melanoma with GP100 specific T cells. And as you can see here, compared to regular IL2, he sees a, a much prolonged uh, suppression of tumor and uh, a an, uh, continued spiking of those adoptively transferred T cells on the, in the right hand graph after each cycle of Nectar 214. So this is given every eight days in the mice. And so you can see after the second cycle, the cells come right back up. With regular IL-2, you kind of see a burnout. You see a bit of a bump after the first cycle of regular IL-2, but then the second cycle, you essentially lose the, uh, the increase of the lymphocytes, but you regain that with, um, with the BEMPEG. And um, similarly, my own lab before I joined Nectar when I was at MD Anderson, we use uh, the PML model as well, but in a vaccine setting. And as you can appreciate here, um, the regular IL-2 alone doesn't really work in the advanced B16 melanoma model. It's a, it's a tough model. Neither does the BEMPEG alone, but in combination with the vaccine, IL-2 shows a little bit of benefit, just like it does in patients. There was a, a good New England Journal of Medicine paper many years ago already at this point of GP100 peptide vaccine in, in IFA, uh, com com uh, combined with IL-2, where there was a, a slight uh, increase in, but significant increase in progression-free survival. But if you can see that um, the Nectar 214 is much more powerful, we see tumor control for uh, about a month and a half, and then all tumors escape. And when we biopsied those tumors, they had all completely lost their target antigen, GP100 which tells us that the T cells are actually doing the job just fine. And, and as you can see in the right-hand graph, they persist uh, excellently, including during the time of, um, of tumor recurrence. And when we look at the exhaustion, they're not particularly more exhausted than while they were controlling the tumor growth. And I think this makes a very clear case for not targeting a single antigen like GP100 and also not with a vaccine and also not targeting an antigen like GP100 that is not essential for the tumor. And I think we can probably all, all nod and agree uh, on that point. So mixtures of, um, of antigens and uh, targeting antigens that are critical for tumor survival are the way to go forward for, uh, for both the vaccine and I think also for CAR T cells as we've, as we've heard about. And then um, this is some work in, done in-house at Nectar of a new, um, a new compound called Nectar 262, which is a pegylated TLR7-8 agonist, 
which is injected intratumorally. And here we're doing the classic two-tumor type experiment where one tumor is injected with the Nectar 262, and then the mice are systemically given Nectar 214. The 262 modifies the tumor microenvironment, turns the macrophages into M1 macrophages, uh, enhances the dendritic cell activation and the priming of T cells. And we can demonstrate tumor-specific T cells in, in the models where we know what the antigens are, for example, in CT26 with the AH1 antigen uh, tetramers. And then the Nectar 214 expands those T cells. We can demonstrate that as well. And it results in, um, in more immunogenic tumors like the EMT6 and the CT26 in control of both the injected tumor and the non-injected bilateral tumor. And that, T that control is T-cell mediated. If we deplete the T-cells, that control is gone. Um, as you can see in the 4T1 bilateral model of mammary carcinoma, a very, very difficult model, very dense with myeloid-derived suppressor cells. Um, we still see a 50% tumor growth inhibition, but that's, of course, not a home run like in the other two models. So that, um, that tells us that we also want to start looking more at that myeloid compartment in some of the tumor types that we know are, are full of myeloid cells and that don't respond well to checkpoint and presumably won't respond that well to checkpoint blockade plus BEMPEC either. I think at some point you can't make enough T cells to overcome these myeloid cells if they're really there in large numbers and, and powerful enough. So then we need something additional. So that'll mean a triple therapy um, in the future. So the conclusions are that um, our biomarker analyses identified immune signatures that do enrich for response in patients with melanoma, but not so much for the urothelial carcinoma. So that's an interesting uh, area of further exploration for us. Um, we do see a lot of responses in pdl one negative tumors, and we see very deep responses uh, as well. We see complete responses in melanoma that are very encouraging. Um, as well as in the um, bladder cancer, and again, particularly in the pdl one negative population where responses are typically low in bladder cancer. Um, so we're continuing to work on, on biomarkers so that we can predict uh, ahead of time from a baseline sample which patients um, should be most amenable to treatment. And based on the mechanism of action, new um, combinations are being explored, and I'm not showing you everything. We're also uh, combining uh, TKIs and radiation, for example, um, with BEMPEG. And I think that is where I'll leave it, and I'll be open for questions. A quick question. Uh, is PDL1 is only tumor, tumor in, and, and both immune filter, and, and is there any cut point there? That's right. You're talking, talking so, about Okay, so the so we're measuring PDL1 both on tumor and on the um, the microenvironment, the the macrophages and other stromal cells. But really, we are using the classical PDL1 on tumor as cutoffs. And percentage? Is it one percent, ten percent? I think we do one percent, but I can get back to you on that to make sure. I hope you enjoyed that podcast from the 2019 IO Combinations 360 conference. For more information, visit iocombinations360.com.